I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest is Buddy Levi. He's an adventurer and writer of adventure and historical nonfiction narratives. He's also a professor of English and creative writing at Washington State University. And he was also a uh, co-host of a History Channel TV program for a couple of years. His latest book is Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition about the 1881 expedition to the North Pole that captured worldwide attention at the time. So again, I just want to reiterate how much I enjoyed this book and what a fascinating story it was. There are all these wonderfully complex psychological and human dynamics going on. So um, to begin... Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Hey, thanks, Sonia. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being on. Why don't you tell us about the mission and then the environment that they were heading up into? Right. So it's fascinating. The expedition's purpose was um, really threefold. So you've got this innovative leader named Adolphus Greeley, who had been a Civil War hero and veteran and injured in the Civil War. And he discovered this man named Karl Weiprecht, who was an Austrian, who wanted to create this thing called the International Polar Year. And he was very visionary, and he wanted to have a ring of research stations circumnavigating the globe at the farthest north points possible to study 
all sorts of climate, weather, and meteorological information. So Greeley ends up being the pick to be the leader of the American contingent, which was the farthest north of all of these polar stations. So they're basically research stations ringing the northernmost reaches of the globe. And what was unusual about Greeley's expedition is that the men were all from the U.S. Army, and many of them had been cavalrymen or men involved in the Signal Corps, as was Greeley. And he had, they had previously just been in the American Southwest fighting Indians and also setting up, Greeley was in charge of setting up telegraph communication across the American Southwest. And so the men are not really perfectly suited to polar exploration, but they're all tough and they're military men. They, they, they're meant to follow orders and do their jobs. And then the science portion of the expedition was pretty well written out. But Greeley also harbored a, a really secret desire to make it to the farthest north, which was this holy grail of polar exploration that no one at the time had been to the North Pole. No one really knew exactly what was up there. There were a lot of theories about it. You know, expedition had been trying to get through the Northwest Passage, and there had been lots of disasters in that search. And then there was another sort of sidebar reason, which was that a U.S. ship called the Jeanette had gone missing two years prior in 1879, and Greeley was charged with trying to find out what, if anything, he could of the had befallen the Jeanette. And the last thing I'll say about that, Greeley knew that at the time, 1881, crew losses for such expeditions were 50% on average. And so all of the men, including Commander Greeley, who, who embarked on these things, knew that there was a, you know, it was grim, and the hopes of survival were actually not so great or ever returning home. But they were driven by this desire, one, for scientific inquiry, and then also for potential fame and glory of getting farther north than anyone had ever gone, and if they got really lucky, to make it all the way to the North Pole. One of your old buddies, Brad Meltzler, he's quoted as saying that polar exploration is utter madness. Um, yeah, Brad's right. Polar exploration is utter madness. But I, I really look at it, you know, in the time as being analogous to our earliest forays into space exploration because, you know, it's it's about discovery, and it's about going to places that no human has ever been before and, and pioneering. And so, you know, I, one thing, it'd be, I really do think that the expedition, by sending these military men to, you know, latitudes that are, you know, very, very difficult to live in, would be like sending people who weren't really trained as astronauts to either the moon or Mars and, and just hoping it was going to turn out well. <laughs> but I will say in Greeley's, you know, in, and in the expedition's defense, that he spent years thinking about, reading about, and planning how this was all going to go. And in the initial conception, you know, the plan included dropping these men off, going up there in a steamship, dropping the men off with all these provisions for a couple of years, and also wood and structures that were prefabricated, and then they were able to build essentially a fort. So they weren't unprepared. It's just that there are lots of complexities with respect to communication, and plans didn't always go according to plan. And so
So, you know, things sort of went well at the beginning, but then they end up deteriorating as things don't really go as planned. This journey is heading north, up the east coast of Canada. Could you paint us a picture of the environment and what the conditions were like heading up there? And they did this in midsummer. So that that's something to right. consider. So, right. So it's really fascinating, especially vis-a-vis what we now know about the region, but they didn't know then. So if you you know head out of the North Atlantic past Nova Scotia, keep going north past Newfoundland, and then you start heading through the Labrador Sea, and you move continually north, and you end up passing Baffin Island. And so you end up with Greenland to the east and Canada, Ellesmere Island, north, far northern Canada to the west. Um, things get really narrow up there and, and, and ice-choked much of the year. And so what was really sort of diabolical was that when Greeley went up there in the summer of 1881, they experienced a very mild summer, and they were able to move through these thousands of miles of waterway with relative ease. And so they moved really quickly, and they arrived up at this place that's called Lady Franklin Bay, named for Sir John Franklin's wife, who spent a couple of decades trying to find out what happened to her husband, so sort of ironically named. But they established this fort that they call Fort Conger, but they're, they're somewhat deceived because they think maybe it'll be that easy to get resupply ships. So they're dropped off there, and they're dropped off in an area that's this promontory... It's, it's lots of bluffs and sort of scrubby, mountainous region. The mountains rise to around 4,000 feet there. But they're really pleased to find that there's a coal seam some five miles away from where they established this fort area. So they, they've got cook stoves and heating stoves, and they've got available coal. And they discovered that there are lots of musk oxen, which are very large and provide a lot of viable protein, and there's shorebirds, ducks, and geese, and, and then they've also brought thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of, of food and provisions for a couple of years. So when they set to building this fort, everything's looking quite good. They, they make great time. They build this fort in a few weeks, and they set up all of these outbuildings for doing scientific research. They're going to be taking some 500 readings a day. And then they've got a double-walled shelter, which they later shore up with ice blocks, so it's very well insulated. But Greeley's ever conscious of the fact that at that latitude, the sun begins to diminish. And once it sets in mid-October, it doesn't rise again until mid-February. So he knows they're going to be encountering this thing called the Long Night, and it's about four months of near-total darkness or perpetual twilight. And so Greeley knows that he needs to get everything set up pretty quickly and prepare for a long, cold winter. But at the beginning, everything is going according to plan. Now, one thing I really developed an appreciation for reading this book was the appreciation of military discipline and order. It just seemed to me that it would be impossible to make this work and for everybody to survive without that. Right. I, too, was moved by Greeley's tenacity and also his leadership style. And so, you know, he'd been enlisted man, and I mean, I think he, he finally got into the Army at 17, but he 
started trying at 15, and he's, he's a lifelong career military person. And so he understands that orders and following orders and discipline are, are paramount to success in any kind of mission, and especially one that's this fraught with danger. And during the first fall up there, they're being attacked by wolves from the outside, and there's some incredible weather happening, you know, 100-mile-an-hour winds and minus 100-degree Fahrenheit weather. And so, you know, for this all to work, everybody has to do their job, and Greeley understands this. And he also knows that he's encountering some conditions that are unprecedented for him and his men. So he sets up a series of lectures that he conducts in the Longhouse, daily lectures in a kind of school three days a week where there's mathematics and geography and geology discussions and lectures. And then he has the men competing in snowshoe races, dog sled races, and, and all sorts of outdoor activity to stave off what's known as polar madness and cabin fever and these things we associate with being pent up and in under close quarters. And so, yeah, Greeley is, you know, he's adamant that everyone does their job and follows orders, but of course, <laughs> that ends up becoming challenged at certain points along the way. And Greeley was an unusually enlightened man, considering that he was a military man and his approach to discipline. He was very well educated, very well informed, very studious. And he displayed, well, maybe not at the very beginning, but he displayed a depth of understanding of the human condition and, and human psychology, which I found to be extremely impressive. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at, I haven't really mentioned the, the fact that they had brought, really had brought along a photographer. He was actually a civilian photographer, but he ended up taking all these great images. And they're, they're, the book is populated by some 40 or 50 images, most of them taken by George Rice. But you can see in Greeley's quarters, it's very organized, and he's got these bookshelves. He's brought all sorts of texts and books and, and documents and books about previous expeditions. So he's very, very learned. And you're right. I mean, he's somewhat of a polymath. He's self-taught in a lot of ways, and he's widely read in many subjects. And it's really impressive, you know, to see that he would take the time to be so widely learned in, in this variety of subject matter. And then how that ends up informing his ability to be flexible later, because he's criticized by a lot of historians who've written about him and by some of his own men's accounts from their diaries of being quite rigid, you know, in his thinking. But I was really impressed with his ability to sort of become open-minded and malleable and flexible when the chips are down. Yes, and they're living in extreme conditions, especially during the long night of winter. They're cramped in close quarters and they're only able to go out for limited periods of time because of the extreme conditions. I would love for you to talk about some of the psychological stresses and the effects that that environment had on those people and how that affected some of the, the interpersonal dynamics. Right. Yeah, so there's some really interesting early dramatic interpersonal dynamics. In fact, there's a, there's a man named Lieutenant Kislingbury who, at the very beginning of the book, he, he's melancholic, and he had had some things going on in his life prior to 
even joining the expedition, where you, you come to learn that he's really severely depressed already when he arrives there. So before the Proteus that has brought them to Fort Conger, Lady Franklin Bay, departs, this Lieutenant Kislingbury has discussions with Greeley, and Greeley determines that he needs to go back to America and, and take care of his personal life, and that he's not suited for the conditions. And Greeley has already determined that this man is what we would now call clinically depressed. But <laughs> unfortunately, the Proteus has been at harbor waiting for the ice conditions to open up and allow for departure. And, and when that happens, the ship is a couple of miles from the fort. And Lieutenant Kisleybury sees it leaving, and he sort of sprints, dragging his bags down the shoreline called the ice foot. And it's this really dangerous and harsh, buckled and crumbling ice foot. And he ends up missing the ship out of there. So right at the outset of the story, you've got this discord, because this guy, he doesn't want to be there, really doesn't want him there, and now he's basically a, a man without a mission and a place. And it's really interesting what ends up happening with him. But I'll say there are other dynamics, too. You've got these two Greenlanders that Greeley has hired, essentially, to run the dogs and the dog sleds, and they play a very important role because they're phenomenal hunters, and they're really great at running the dogs. And so these men are become instrumental in, in some of the triumphant of the triumphant and tragic aspects of this story, because they're part of these great forays to the north where they're kind of expeditionary and and then there's some weird things happen with those guys because one of them ends up going what we'd call walkabout, you know. So once the winter sets in, they sort of get homesick and just strike out from the fort, not very well dressed, and, and they just leave in the, you know, so that you've got men risking their lives to go find out where this man who's becoming depressed is. But that stuff all is just early on, it serves as this backdrop that things are maybe going to become harder and harder as time goes on. And the last thing I'll say about that is, I mean, when you think about, you know, even today where winters, we, we have, you know, seasonal disorder because of the lack of sun in winter. And then up at this latitude, we're talking about, you know, four months of near total darkness and then cramped confines. And so you've got men sleeping, like you said, in very close quarters. They're in bunkhouses and they're bumping into one another. And, and then coupled with that, you know, you're not very comfortable. And so there's a kind of unease that begins to permeate the group. So how does Greeley deal with all of that? How does he how does he make it all work? Well, I think one of his great skills was to he he obviously had this goal for farthest north and so I look at the narrative actually in two parts. There's life at Fort Conger, the first two years that are involved in scientific inquiry and then these expeditions where they're basically going out, you know, into the wild in small groups, usually with these two men, Lockwood and Brainerd, and one of the Greenlandic sledge drivers, and then life after Fort Conger. But so one of the things really was really good at is saying, look, you know, we're here to try to discover new places and maybe make it to the North Pole. So everybody has a job, and there's men doing, you know, daily readings, and then really is organizing these really challenging and ambitious expeditions that sometimes take up to two months. I mean, the attempt for Farthest North takes 60 days, and the men are out covering, you know, a couple thousand miles, 12 to 15 miles a day over 
very mountainous terrain. And so he has men doing different things. And I think that's one of the great skills, his ability to delegate and then to make sure every, you know, the cook, there's cooks who are doing the cooking, there's hunters who are doing the hunting, the men who are doing the exploring, there's carpenters, and, you know, you've got people who are doing mechanical things, and then he has one man working on essentially like a seamster and working on footwear and all the leather and hide sleeping bags. So everyone has a very specific job, or in most cases, multiple jobs, and you know, as long as they're being kept busy, then they're doing well. As long as they're being kept busy and everyone's doing their job, things are going well. And at the same time, each summer, there are these ships sent out to replenish their stores and to bring them communication from the outside world. I would love for you to talk about what happened with all of that. And we have to remember that this is the latter part of the 19th century when the extent of technology was the telegraph, which had not made it up that far north, and what we call snail mail these days, which is <laughs> it's a funny concept because everybody is so used to communicating instantaneously with each other all over the planet. And this was a completely different time and environment. Right. That's a really great point because the communication ends up becoming a vital aspect of the story. But yeah, you remind me of the importance of and these incredible images that I have in my head still of them. So the plan was that after the first year, each summer, that resupply was going to come from the United States and down around Newfoundland. That would bring them more provisions, but not only that, that would bring them written correspondence from home, you know, newspapers from home, national newspapers, political information, and also I think most vital to most of the men, including really would be letters from family and loved ones, wives and children, so that they got a connection back to their homeland, you know. And so that first summer of 1882, they're waiting they used to just go up onto these promontories near the fort that rose a couple thousand feet above the sea line and stare out at the Discovery Harbor and the Kennedy Channel and just staring out looking for signs of a ship, right? So there were these daily vigils where they would tromp up to try and see what the conditions of the water looked like. Or was there too much ice for a ship to make it through? And, you know, this would happen for you know, like a month. And then they knew essentially when nothing came, once you got past August, that that was that, right? And so this is sort of heartbreaking to see these men staring out at the conditions and, and just hoping and thinking of home, thinking of their loved ones. They've got bound bundles of letters that they've been writing on a daily basis to send back home. And Greeley has not only letters and diaries, but, you know, military official documents that they're all going to be sent back. And everything's you know, would take months to go either way. And so what I was able to do is cut back and forth between what's happening with these ships that are trying to reach them in chapters where you get to see what's going on back home and these attempts to get ships to them and then cutting back to the men standing on these bluffs looking hopefully out at sea. And it's really quite moving. But yeah, that whole aspect of it, there are some really difficult situations that occur with the ships trying to resupply them, and they end up becoming their own drama. 
calamities of their own. And I would love for you to talk a bit about the issues with those supply missions. So one of the problems is that back home, you've got this man named Robert Todd Lincoln, who is Abraham Lincoln's eldest son, who is the Secretary of War. And he's in charge, because this is an army expedition, he's in charge of guaranteeing that resupply and relief will occur. And it has to go through Congress, which, as we know, even today, can be laborious and slow-moving and not always in sync. <laughs> in, in, in addition, Robert Todd Lincoln was not very supportive of Arctic expeditions in the first place because they're expensive and they often result in loss of life, and he didn't view them as being very useful. Let's just say the scientific aspect of it was not as important enough to him to outweigh the sort of fiscal and political cost of what usually ended up being disaster. So there's a lot of foot dragging going on back home. And I don't spend a great deal of time on the foot dragging, but just to illustrate that it's happening and that Greeley and his men, they don't know that it's happening. And so they're just hoping that relief is going to come. And so you've got these ships when they do end up the timing becomes crucial because, like I said, there's a very small window when the waterways are safe, navigable, and open, uh, a small window each summer. And if the ships aren't sent by an early enough date, usually, hopefully, like early June, very early June, then the chances become really diminished that they're going to make it through this incredible labyrinth of ice that can crush ships. I mean, they literally can take a 200-foot-long ship and crush it like matchsticks. And so it's very dramatic because you you see these ships being imperiled in this incredibly dangerous, moving, shifting ice pack. And you start to understand how vulnerable everyone is. Even with, you know, a steam engine, you're quite vulnerable. So, yeah, there's this dramatic dance back and forth between what's happening in the United States and then the reader gets to know what's happening and Greeley and his men don't know what's happening. So there's another undercurrent of tension going on there. And this whole expedition was extremely well-planned with contingency plans planned out where these resupply ships even if they weren't able to make it up to Fort Conger, they were charged with the task of putting caches of food at various points along the way that were predetermined before the expedition. And because of the difficult conditions, some of that fell through. Right. I'm really glad you brought that up because, again, you know, Greeley has in the initial plans, I mean, they're incredibly detailed and well thought out. And the plans include lots of contingencies in the event that the first relief ships do not make it. They are charged with leaving caches of food. And these caches are in giant metal storage containers that are meant to be bear-proof. You know, so you've got thousands of pounds of tinned and canned meat and breads. And this stuff is all meant to be left at very clearly defined points that are marked by these cairns in which you can cache. So these cairns are like huge piles of stones at prominent points or islands that, you know, Greeley and his men have already determined. And so he's counting on those orders to be followed so that in the event that he has to depart Fort Conger, which ends up 
being an eventuality. He can rely on the fact that the U.S. government has done its job and left food where it said it was going to leave food. And so, really, he believes that to be the case. And these caches, they were called Arctic post offices at the time. And so this was sort of the way, if a ship came through and it wasn't able to get all the way up there, it's going to leave provisions, but also it's going to leave detailed messages about what happened and when it happened and where anything that is left is exactly. So they would put, like in metal ammo cases, they would have written letters and communication for one another so they knew what was going on and when it had happened. I'm talking with Buddy Levi. He's a writer and professor of English and creative writing at Washington State University. And his latest book that we're talking about is Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition, about the 1881 expedition to the North Pole that captured worldwide attention at the time. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Another one of the things that I found really fascinating and moving was how Greeley and even the other men of the expedition, as you said, they were counting on the U.S. government to follow through on the pre-arranged and pre-agreed upon parts of the mission especially the contingency aspects of it. And this is what, I mean, we have to somehow paint a picture of what it's like being completely isolated way, way up in the north where it's incredibly difficult for ships to get through, let alone people on foot. So they're basing their, their hopes and faith in their survival upon everybody doing their job. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that. So I talked about the book being sort of set up as life at Fort Conger and then life after Fort Conger. And so what ends up happening, if I'm going to jump to life after Fort Conger, is that in the second summer, after lots of uh, walking up onto the hills and, and having these vigils of staring out into the Discovery Harbor again, the second resupply doesn't come. And that's another really incredible story of survival that has to do with the Proteus and its attempt to come back to them. But what really determines per his orders is that by, say, mid-August of the second summer, if resupply hasn't come, he's going to board up Fort Conger and then strike south in, he has a 28-foot-long steamship dubbed the Lady Greeley, and then five or so small wooden oar-driven whale boats that they're going to tether together and pull behind the Lady Greeley and then leave the fort and strike 250 miles to the south, sometimes moving through water, sometimes, you know, dragging these boats up along the shore to a point called Cape Sabine, where most of the resupply is meant in the contingency plans to be dropped off for them. And so you have this incredibly dramatic moment where Greeley has said we're leaving. Not all the men agree. There's tons of grumbling and discord because they have the safety of the fort and the warmth of the fort and enough food to survive another year, perhaps. But, you know, orders are orders, and Greeley's going to do what he said he was going to do. And so they leave. And at that point, you know, they are really imperiled because 
because the men are in this waterway. And early on after they depart Fort Conger, there's this, I mean, I was bowled over when I read about this. They have to pull all their boats out of the water because this giant ice flow is moving from the north at high speed through this channel. And they stand on the shore and watch it pass. And it takes nine hours for this ice flow. It's just a flattish, giant raft of ice that is 15 miles long. And they have to stand on the shore and get out of its way. And you realize at that point that, you know, these are mere specks in this massive landscape. These men and their boats are just tiny little dots of dust, essentially. And so you really get the sense that that things are going to be dangerous now. And then you've got this arduous descent. And at one point, they're, you know, on an iceberg a couple miles long that gets torn in half by being bashed from another iceberg. And you you can't even believe they're able to just survive because now they're just out hunkering under tarps and a teepee and inside these whale boats that are they're just being covered in snow and ice and the temperatures are freezing and you realize that the darkness is going to descend you know in this very short time and then they better make land before that happens or they're all going to die and they're being hit by major snowstorms at the same time so when they were debating that decision to leave fort conger they were leaving a very safe, secure, well-provisioned environment and heading out into incredibly dangerous conditions that they were well aware of. And there was one particular character in this part of the story who develops an adversarial relationship with Greeley. And it revolves a lot around this, but it was brewing all along, I think. Right. So I think you're talking about Octave Pavey, the doctor. So this guy, Octave Pavey, who really had brought along, and and he's very useful um, because he's a surgeon, he's a medical doctor, and so he's been taking care of all sorts of conditions, frostbite, minor cuts and bruises, concussions, broken limbs. Nobody has died at this point, and it's somewhat remarkable given the conditions, but he didn't want to leave the fort. He also was really disgruntled because he had wanted to be the one who reached farthest north if they could. And so there's this competitive aspect. Ultimately, really doesn't choose him to go on the expedition to reach farthest north. So he's peeved about that. And then he's also adamant that they should have stayed. So there's a moment that I think you're talking about when they are kind of marooned on the ice and some of the men, and there's a couple of factions developed where Octave Pavey has actually rounded up a few men who agree that they need to go back, and they even agree that they, they're, they're trying, he's trying to make the case that Greeley's no longer in a mental capacity to lead them. And so you've got this mutiny brewing where Octave Pavey is suggesting that they actually take over at gunpoint and subdue Greeley and then go back to the fort. It's somewhat harebrained because they certainly can't move on water back north, but they could conceivably, I suppose, and that's Pavey's thought process, that they could conceivably go on land back to the fort. So you've got this like remarkably tense moment in the middle of the night, you know, with snow swirling all around them and these men hatching a plan that amounts to mutiny, which, you know, of course, at the time is punishable by execution. And so 
yeah, things get really tense. And fortunately for Greeley, he has a number of devoted men who believe in him. And let's just leave it at that. So let's get back to the journey south, where they're trying to get to Sabine Island. And they've got a small steamship and whaling boats and sleds that the men have to pull. And the sleds are loaded with food and gear and scientific instruments and things like that. Talk about how arduous it was to travel across on land and across these ice flows, dragging all of this material. Right. So it's hard to even imagine how difficult the conditions are and also just the practical nature of trying to move and get anywhere. So the book's called Labyrinth of Ice, and part of that describes the challenging element of what are called leads. And so you've got this ice-choked body of water that is now you know, becoming sort of filled with polar ice. And so to move on water, you need to navigate these leads, which are basically like highway width, sort of snaking waterways. They don't go straight very often. And if, as long as you can move through those, you can get somewhere on the water. But what happens is that the ice is ever shifting. So when leads close, you have to then reverse or pull all the equipment back up onto an ice flow and hope also that that ice is strong enough to hold you and the gear. And we're talking, like you said, thousands of pounds of gear that the men are having to then pull on these sledges. They've abandoned the dogs by now, so they have to load gear onto the sled and then men pull it with leather harnesses. So the difficulty is that if the ships or the steam launch and the whaleboats, if they can't make it through these leads and if they begin to close, the ice can actually crush the wooden ships and then, you know, everything sinks. So they have to constantly be monitoring the leads up ahead and moving. And some men will, will go up and be sort of what are called ice pilots. And so they're navigating. And then the others are charged with, you know, sort of pulling this gear up and off the ice. And so it ends up being this incredible navigation challenge, and it's exhausting, you know, 12 to 20 sometimes hours a day of moving on and off the ice, sometimes onto shore, sometimes not. Sometimes the ice flow on which they are floating is actually blown, and the tide shift, and it moves away from shore. So now they're literally floating on an ice island and hoping that the tides and winds will move them back to shore eventually. And, and this is coupled with the fact that the light is beginning to diminish, and they have two months' worth of food left, and they're going to run out. So it's, it's high-stakes adventure and survival, and you know, it, there's so many moments when their fate looks really uncertain. So... This book is incredibly detailed. I mean, you really do a, a wonderful job of carrying the narration through moment by moment. I would love for you to talk about the research you did and how you put it all together, how long that took, and, and what it was like doing all that research and then writing these narratives and considering how long you were doing all of this research and writing, um, how a story like this affected you psychologically 
and perhaps even your physical well-being, because I know while I'm reading these stories, I'm dramatically affected by this. I have a very strong sympathetic response to the stories that I get immersed in. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very perceptive. I really appreciate that. So, you know, I spent a couple of years on this book, and the detail aspect was very much aided by the fact that Greeley was adamant that they bring their journals, diaries, field notes, and everything with them from Fort Conger. There was some discussion of leaving it behind, and Greeley and the men, well, Greeley initially, you know, he, he made sure that everyone was going to hand in their field journals, and they were all collected and boxed, you know, in, in these secure containers that were watertight. And so the number of the men, some of Greeley's most trusted men, including a gentleman named David Brainerd, were excellent writers, and they were recording daily journals and notes that were really specific, and Greeley's were too, including the weather, the exact temperatures at multiple times per day, wind speeds, what the conditions of the ice were like. So it was really, really helpful to be able to, you know, describe with absolute accuracy what it was like on a particular day. And, you know, Greeley was spending every single day, and it's really hard to imagine the discomfort of lying in some flapping canvas tent on a floating berg and scribbling notes and both making sure that those notes were accurate. And so he was also adamant that they bring as much of the scientific inquiry and, and equipment with them as they could, because Greeley said, you know, should we be lost, it's important that our efforts and discoveries are not lost to the world. But yeah, so once they get through this incredibly difficult descent and, and manage to make land again, things are not, their troubles are far from over. And you mentioned, you know, sort of the physical well-being or psychological well-being. So I have to say that I broke down and wept on numerous occasions while writing this book because, you know, you feel really like you're there with them in a sense. I mean, I think when I'm writing as well as I can and when it's working as well as, as it should, the reader and by extension, the writer feels like they're there. And these men, there's so much humanity in this story. You know, there begins to be starvation and you've got men who are weakening they're losing their grip on reality. But through all of that, there develops this deep camaraderie. Once you're past the discord and past the potential mutiny, and I think all the men begin to realize that if we don't work together, then we're certainly all going to die. And so you get these moments, these really intense moments of selflessness where a couple of the men will volunteer to go look for these caches of food that really suspects should be where they say they're going to be. And, you know, you've got men who are beginning to weaken to the point of delirium and really through it becomes this sort of paternal figure. And he sometimes is holding men in his arms, you know, and spoon feeding them this sort of gruel of sealed blubber and, you know, melted fat. And it's it's just so grim, but also, you know, you realize there's a kind of tenderness to these hard men that is really moving. And they're also all aware that they're very, very close to these caches that they're trying to get to, and that if the conditions will just turn in their favor, they're just, I think maybe they got to within 20 miles of, of one of their major objectives. 
Right, and that's, oh man, it's just so heartbreaking at times because so there's the caches of food that have been left by some previous expeditions that really believes are attainable. But I think also one of the most heartbreaking and dramatic elements is that from where they are on the eastern shore of this place called Cape Sabine, they're across from Greenland main shore, this place called Littleton Island and Pandora Harbor that is literally 22 miles away. And they know that there's a small... Utah Greenlandic settlement there. So these people live there full time and they're there. There are shelters, little homes, there's food. And, you know, Greeley and his men are always climbing up onto this promontory and looking across. And if the ice will just cooperate. So now they're kind of hoping that it'll completely become ice choked and be sort of a ice bridge that they can go across. But 22 miles is you know, it could be a thousand depending on how the conditions are because the matter of weakening and also if the ice isn't totally firm, you'll break through and just plummet to your death. And so you've got these forays going out looking for the caches of meat on the Elsmere Island side. And then Greeley will send men to go assess the ice bridge. And they're often just standing there looking through telescopes or binoculars trying to see if they can get any glimmer of hope and life on the other side, which you know is there, and it's really moving. Yeah, that's such an amazing story. I find these stories extremely compelling, and I'm wondering, what is it about these kind of stories that you find so compelling that not only do you love these stories, but that you will spend years writing them? Ah, right. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. So, first of all, in this story, I mean, I have to say, I've I've read a lot, and I think it's one of the greatest adventure and survival stories in history, not only polar history, but one of the great adventure and survival stories in all of history. But it's not my first foray or excursion into expedition and discovery. I mean, I wrote a book about the first Europeans to descend the entire length of the Amazon called River of Darkness, and there's something about people in dire conditions, something about people in the most dire of consequences, and at the very edge of things, that really intrigues me, how they'll operate individually and together, the kind of interpersonal dynamics that happen when leadership breaks down. I really like discovery, so in the case of the Amazon, you know, it's in just a remarkable place, and I suppose one of the other things is that I'm, I'm kind of selfish, and so I like to, usually when I'm writing about something, I will go to the place that I'm writing about, physically travel there so that I can do the best possible job of letting the reader know what it's like on the ground there. So when I wrote River of Darkness, I spent three weeks, well, first I traveled over the Andes from Quito, Ecuador, to this place called Coca, Ecuador, which is one of the jumping-off points to the upper Amazon, and then floated in dugout canoes with a very small group of five for a few weeks, sleeping in the Amazonian jungle and rainforest, and, you know, just sort of understanding what the sounds and of the, you know, experiencing the flora and fauna and the smells and the sounds and just getting the best sense I possibly could and try to transport the reader there. And in the case of Labyrinth of Ice, I had been to Greenland for a couple of weeks, actually before I wrote the book, but I was also writing about it as a journalist at that time. So I took copious notes about the landscape and it gave me a great sense of the scope and scale of the place, which is immense and somewhat humbling. And so, yeah, 
I, I think I just like stories about people trying to figure out their straits, um, trying to discover things and then also figure out how they're going to survive when things don't go well. And it seems in almost all of these adventure stories, these historical adventure stories, that something always goes wrong that provide a major challenge for people to deal with. Yeah, and, you know, I think, so that's another element of it is, is problem solving. I'm always transfixed by people's abilities at these times. You know, you're talking about, you know, being able to manufacture craft and, and build makeshift shelter and being able to use in really difficult conditions, strike fires and figure out how to cook food, figuring out how to obtain food, you know, hunting. And so those things are all really compelling to me, too. The ability, like just how able people were at the time, so much more, you know, we've become so highly specialized that, you know, most of us get left out in the woods would not survive for very long, you know, and you've got people who are really able and fundamentally, you know, they understand how things work and how to get things done. And I am not necessarily among those, <laughs> you know, as a, as a writer, you know, so I'm always amazed at people's abilities to pull things off. And it sort of makes you think sometimes we should step back a little bit and learn how to do things in case things don't go so well. Yeah, I actually think about that a fair amount because most of humanity is dependent on their iPhones, essentially. And right. We're <laughs> dependent on others. And yeah. so, yeah, if, you know, if we had some sort of incredible power outage or a solar flare happens or something, you know, it'd be important to know, like, how to get some water and food and right. eat. Yeah, this notion of how to survive in this world is, is such a foreign concept. I mean, I'm, it's been many years since I have dealt with that kind of real world myself. Yeah, I mean, you know, right now, today, where I live, it's probably 20 degrees outside. If the heat went off, you know, it wouldn't take very long before I needed to build a fire or, you know, bundle up or start thinking about the fact that the water is going to freeze pretty soon. Yeah. And so these were all daily realities for really and his men. And so I, I think it's good to be reminded every once in a while of how tenuous things really are. And that, you know, it's a, not a bad idea to learn some woodcraft skills. Luckily, I have plenty of firewood here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and so that's one of the things is sort of swinging back to the narratives that I try to tell. A lot of them, you know, have to do with people before a great deal of technology. You know, just where we didn't really know. Now we think we have a lot of the answers. But back in these times I like to write about, there was so much that was still unknown. And that's really analyzing to me. Mm -hmm. So you teach writing at Washington State University, and you teach creative writing. I'm really curious about creative writing in relation to these kind of non-fictional narratives and the writing of nonfiction and how those two figure into your writing and your work. Ah, sure. Great question. Well, I teach both fiction and nonfiction, but I certainly treat them in a similar way. Because my background is so steeped in research-based writing, I try to get my students to understand that solid 
background knowledge about subjects is really important to being able to tell a good story. And so I have usually one or maybe more assignments that will ask that they do research and that that way move beyond just writing about self because there's this real tendency among creative writers, young creative writers, to write, you know, memoir-based or personal experience essays, which are fine insofar as they go, but they're very self-involved, you know? And so what I hope by at least showing by example that you can, that there's lots to write about out there that doesn't involve self, you know? Almost all of my books involve, my first book was a partly memoir, but ever since then I, you know, have written about a wide range of subjects that have nothing to do with me except maybe what I'm interested in, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's important to look at that there are incredible stories out there. And I don't believe that adage that, like, they're more interesting because they're true. I just think that they are interesting because they happen to have happened. And that a lot of times there's this element of surprise and discovery for me when I realize that there's a story, even a well-known story. I wrote a book about the conquest of Mexico, you know, and this is hardly unknown, but it has to do with how you approach the storytelling, right? So, you know, Cortez and Montezuma's fateful meeting in 1519 is, you know, it's been covered for hundreds of years, but there's a new way of looking at it. And then I try to encourage my students, and I try to do this myself, is to bring a cinematic quality to the storytelling so that you think about scenes, you know. I think about writing scenes and stringing scenes together, and if the scenes are memorable, then the reader's in, you know, they're invested, if they feel like they're part of the expedition. So I'm less concerned with, you know, dates and facts, and while I want those to be right and correct, I'm more interested in the stories and the characters, and in the sense that, you know, they're, they're figures, they're historical figures, they live. But I do look at them as characters because, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the drama in Labyrinth of Ice, and it has to do with, you know, how diabolical Octave Pavey ends up becoming. And, you know, you've got this private Henry who's stealing food. And so you treat him like a character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the cinematic quality of this, for me, my mind, my inner landscape was just full of this rich story, the images, and I was completely immersed and enthralled with the story the entire time. And you spend a lot of time with movies, too, creating movies. People spend a lot of time doing research and writing for one book. I do a radio show where I have to put in quite a bit of work, but it's a weekly thing. I haven't done the kind of project of writing a book or creating a movie that, where there's so much effort and time goes into one thing, it's done, and then you move on. What's it like to do that? Wow, that's a great question. So I will tell you that it's, it takes a toll, you know? Uh, the funny thing is that people always like, so I, I did a couple of readings recently, and you know, one of the questions you get in the Q&A is, you know, what's next? What are you working on now? And, you know, I have had a pretty good run, right? So I had my first book come out in, well, 98, but then my first New York book came out in 2005. That was Crockett. And then since then, I've had a book every three years since 2005 until now. And, you know, it's really physically and emotionally draining. And so you put 
everything into the research process. And then once I'm drafting, I'm usually, you know, writing for between six and 15 hours a day, not to mention the editing. And you're emotionally taxed by trying to piece it all together, have the characters or the figures speak at the right times, you know, and and interweave all of this with a very complex narrative that you also are hopeful that is going to be riveting for the reader. And so once I write the end and then begin the process of working with the publishing team, I mean, it really does take kind of a toll. And also, you know, writing is so solitary, so you're sitting at a desk a lot. And so I'm usually a little bit, I wouldn't say traumatized, but you know, when they ask that question, what's the next one? I sometimes am thinking, well, I kind of just want to breathe and enjoy the fruits of this last labor, if there are fruits to enjoy beyond the process, and then sort of slowly come back around and become revitalized and, and then get into thinking about a next project. But so, yeah, I mean, each one takes a couple to three years. And so I view it as sort of like writing maybe a master's degree or PhD every few years and just like reloading and doing it again on a different subject, you know? And so it's very fulfilling, but it leaves a mark, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm talking with Buddy Levi. He's a writer and professor of English and creative writing at Washington State University. And his latest book that we're talking about is Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition about the 1881 expedition to the North Pole that captured worldwide attention at the time. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. There's another thing that I find fascinating about the relationship of fiction and nonfiction that I find that there's a very blurry line between the two. Because history, as we all know, is written by the victor, and everybody has their own perspective of what happened, you know, the facts, what really happened. I'm curious how you relate to that dynamic, because there are a lot of people who write historical fiction, where they're basing it upon real events and real characters, but they're creating their own story, often in in situations where there isn't enough factual history to put it all together. And I think there are people who are taking the liberty of rewriting history in the, for their own, you know, from their own perspective. How do you feel about those things? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would only probably write historical fiction if, as you say, there were such large gaps in what we have in terms of documentation and, and what we know that you have to fill it in with fiction. And that said, there's a lot of great historical fiction out there, you know. I tend to not read so much of it only because of the nature of the work that I do. And so what I think is important, though, you you mentioned, you know, like rewriting history. I think in any event, you've got multiple perspectives, right? And I'll, I'll use my book Conquistador as an example, and you're right, I mean, a lot of information we have is written by the Spaniards, and they happen to have been, you know, incredibly dutiful about bringing scribes to record the daily battles. But they also 
stayed around Mexico City and the area that they conquered for 40 years or so. And these friars actually learned the local languages and taught the local people Spanish, and then they were able to get their story. So I tried to bring that to bear on the storytelling of the Conquistador so that it wasn't completely one-sided. I know it is weighted toward the side of the Spanish for sure. And, you know, Cortez, there's always a kind of axe to grind, right? So, you know... There's an agenda often embedded in a narrative where, let's say, you know, Cortez is trying to justify his actions to the king and the crown and justify behavior that was really mutinous in many cases. But I think as long as the writer is fair about the fact that, you know, you are nodding to these agendas in a way, because history is not static to me at all. There's not like one story. And, you know, we're living in a time that's a little bit dangerous, I think, with respect to facts and alternate facts and alternate histories. But I think it's important to do as much work as you possibly can on understanding a narrative and understanding the context around that narrative. And then trying to be as true to the story and the history as you can, at least in my approach, without veering too far from what is known. Now, I will add that there are situations where it gets really and this is what takes so much time and what's so hard, is that, you know, you'll have multiple perspectives on a single event and multiple viewpoints. The people telling the stories have different you know, reasons and agendas for telling it the way they do. And so at a certain point, you have to come to a kind of interpersonal or personal consensus and say, okay, look, I've read six versions of this, and it looks like, as best I can tell, this is what happened and how it played out. And then if I ever am really just totally struggling with it, I'll have a footnote that says, for further information about this really complex moment, you know, read the following three essays. And so that way the reader has an opportunity to do what I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a fascinating thing. As you were talking about that, what occurred to me was the JFK assassination and all, ah. the, all the different versions of that. I mean, just an incredibly wide range of versions, and many of them are directly contradicting each other. So this whole thing I find to be fascinating, and I love actually reading about you know, different versions, different accounts of the same thing, and then trying to not only get a perspective on the whole thing, but also get an understanding of the complex human dynamics involved in the way stories are told. Right. Yeah, and that's a great example. I think there's more than 200 books written on the Kennedy assassination. But, you know, you have to... Sometimes it's exasperating and overwhelming. And so, you know, I try to choose... Well, at least so far in my writing career, I've chosen works that aren't so deeply divided and controversial. There may be elements within them that are... but. And I will say, though, on, like you mentioned at the outset, that I was on a television show for a couple of years called Brad Meltzer's Decoded that looked at historical mysteries and conspiracy theories. And we ran into a lot there. And one example I'll give is, so we did an episode. Um, I was one of the cast on screen called Decoders. We were the ones being sent out to try to figure out what happened, you know, and interviewing people on camera. And there's this story about D.B. Cooper. Are you familiar with that story? Is he the one who jumped out of the airplane with right. with this huge amount of money and was never found? 
Right. So, yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, it happened between Portland and Seattle back in the 70s. And, you know, it's the only unsolved hijacking in American aviation history to this day. I mean, it's still not exactly solved. But what was so interesting that connects to what you're talking about is that there have been, I don't know, more than a dozen different people have come forward through the years claiming to have solved this mystery. Like, who was D.B. Cooper? Who was this guy? And you realize that, you know, and the FBI has been working on it for decades, and you realize, like, history is kind of this moving target, you know? And it's tantalizing, but also a little maddening, because you realize, well, we may never know the truth, but people still are, I mean, he, you know, this guy parachuted out of an airplane. Well, first of all, he flew from Portland, Seattle, claiming to have a bomb, and then he, he let off everyone but the flight attendant and the pilot, and he had the... FBI gave him a couple hundred thousand dollars and some parachutes, and then after he got back up into the air, he leapt from 10,000 feet. So he's pretty dramatic. And they found some of the money later, and it's like, how could we not know who this guy was, but we still really don't? Of course, we in the episode of Decoded think we figured it out, but it's just by way of showing that, you know, if you interview different people for decades, how can we get to the bottom of this? It's really perplexing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all this stuff is so fascinating, and all of it swirling around this one story that you you just wrote, this labyrinth of ice. And this conversation, this interview has been such a pleasure. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, this book has everything that I look for, and so I, I hope readers feel that way, too. You know, it's just very, very moving, very dramatic, visually stunning. The landscape is just so compelling. And so, yeah, I really appreciate being on and you taking the time and, and to do all of your research. This has been a great conversation. I love these kind of stories. And this book, I would put it at the top of the heap just because of all the complexity and your ability to weave it together in such a, a beautifully seamless narrative. Oh, well, thank you so much. That means a great deal. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you so much for coming back and redoing this interview. Not a problem. Really enjoy talking to you. I'll let you know when I have another book out. Yeah. Do you have another project in mind? Well, not exactly. I'm, I'm just beginning to get really enthusiastic about landing the next idea. I've got a great team with my agent in New York, and he's got a woman who's kind of helping to come up with ideas and curate with my agent's table of writers. So not quite yet, but for me, the research part is really the most fun in a lot of ways. And so I'm enjoying the inquiry and poking around. Well, I look forward to your next project, your next book, and getting to talk to you about that. And again, this has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Tony. I really appreciate it. Until next time, be well. You too. And that was Buddy Levi. He's an adventurer and writer of adventure and historical narrative nonfiction. He's also a professor of English and creative writing at Washington State University. And his latest book, which we've been talking about, is Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition, about the 1881 expedition to the North Pole that captured worldwide attention at the time. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio.
riding on the Mayflower and I thought I'd spot some land. I yelled for Captain E-Rib, I have you understand. Who came running to the deck, said, boys, forget the wheel. We're going over yonder, cut the engines, change the sails. Haul on the bowline, we sang that melody like all tough sailors do when they're far away at sea. I think I'll call it America, I said as we hit land. I took a deep breath, I fell down, I could not stand. Captain Arab, he started writing up some deeds. He said, let's set up a fort and start buying a place with beads. Just then this cop comes down the street, crazy as a loon. He throws us all in jail for carrying harpoons. Ah, me, I busted out, don't even ask me how I went to get some help, I walked by a Guernsey cow Who directed me down to the Bowery slums Where people carried signs around, saying ban the bums I jumped right into line, saying I hope that I'm not late When I realized I had eaten for five days straight Looking for the cook I told him I was the editor Of a famous etiquette book The waitress, he was handsome He wore a powder blue cape I ordered some Suzette I said, could you please make that crepe Just then the whole kitchen Exploded from boiling fat Food was flying everywhere I left without my hat Some bail for a rab and all the boys back in the tank. They asked me for some collateral and I pulled down my pants. They threw me in the alley when up comes this girl from France who invited me to her house. I went, but she had a friend who knocked me out and robbed my boots, and I was on the street again. Well, I wrapped up on a house with the U.S. flag upon display. I said, could you help me out? I got some friends down the way. The man says, get out of here. I'll tear you limb from limb. I said, you know, they refused Jesus, too. He said, you're not him. Get out of here before I break your bones. I ain't your pop. I decided to have him arrested, and I went looking for a cop. Inside a cab, I went out the other door. This Englishman said, Fab, as he saw me leap a hot dog stand in a chariot that stood parked across from a building advertising brotherhood. I ran right through the front door like a hobo sailor does, but it was just a funeral parlor, and a man asked me who I was. I repeated that my friends were all in jail with a sigh. 
He gave me his card. He said, call me if they die. I shook his hand and said goodbye. Ran out to the street when a bowling ball came down the road and knocked me off my feet. A payphone was ringing. It just about blew my mind. When I picked it up and said hello, this foot came through the line. Well, by this time I was fed up at trying to make a stab At bringing back any help for my friends and Captain Arab I decided to flip a coin like either heads or tails Would let me know if I should go back to ship or back to jail So I parked my sailor suit and I got a coin to flip It came up tails around my sail so I made it back to the ship Well, I got back and took the parking ticket off the mast. I was ripping it to shreds when this Coast Guard boat went past. They asked me my name, and I said Captain Kidd. They believed me, but they wanted to know what exactly that I did. I said, for the Pope of Eruk, I was employed. They let me go right away. They were very paranoid. Well, the last I heard of Arab, he was stuck on a whale that was married to the deputy sheriff of the jail. But the funniest thing was when I was leaving the bay, I saw three ships sailing. They were all heading my way. I asked the captain what his name was and how come he didn't drive a truck. He said his name was Columbus. I just said good luck. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week.